Welcome to Understanding the Bible, episode number 43, The Armor of God, the Sword of the Spirit. So this is a continuation of uh, the armor of God in the past few episodes that we've done in Ephesians chapter 6. So we'll read that passage and then we'll dive into it. Starting in verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So if this is the first episode on spiritual warfare that you've listened to, I'd recommend that you stop here, go back to episode 34, where I started this. Uh, Episode 34 is, we are in a war, are you acting like it? And it covers uh, leading up to Ephesians 6, where we realize we're in a spiritual war and we put on the armor of God. Quick note on this, um, while I was doing the study on this, uh, I found out that Paul is the author of uh, Ephesians here. He probably didn't come up with this metaphor about the armor of God. Uh, It it sounds like he may have actually gotten it from Isaiah. Remember, Paul was a scholar of the Old Testament, and that's all he had to study for the majority of his life because he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. So in his time, the Roman soldiers with the centurions and their armor were well known, and he may have equated or uh, had their armor in mind when he was reading Isaiah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's just speculation, but a lot of times you'll hear, and I, even I have uh, mentioned a couple of the Roman pieces of armor in relation to this passage. The metaphor actually comes from Isaiah. So further back in ancient history with the Jews um, fighting the Philistines and things like that. So let me read that passage real quick just so you can hear where I'm getting that. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 17 says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now this is talking about God. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, grandchildren, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Notice in Isaiah, he mentioned the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He also talks about how the Lord has the clothing of vengeance and zeal. So you look in the New Testament where God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And then the last part of that was talking about the word of God coming out of your mouth. Well, this is the sword that Ephesians 6, 17 says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What is the sword? Number one, it's obviously a weapon of war that can be used to attack, to cut and destroy your enemy or to defend, to parry the blows of the enemy, right? But in this particular passage, it tells us what the sword of the Spirit is. It says, which is the Word of God. So let's look at a couple of passages that explain that a little bit more. Hebrews 4.12 is the big one. 
It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God has so much truth in it that it pierces to your heart when you hear it and when you meditate on it and when you think about it. It actually divides your soul and spirit and makes you realize your need for God. Before we meet Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And when we hear the word of God, which is the gospel message, then it presents to us an option, a fork in the road, if you will, where now we can choose to follow God as opposed to the path that we were on to destruction and hell. And now our spirit can be made alive in Christ. So Hebrews 4.12 um, really clarifies that, that the word of God is a two-edged sword. And in Revelations 19, this one's very interesting because it's talking about God coming back uh, with an army to destroy um, Satan and his demons and the armies of the world. Revelations 19.11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is Jesus Christ. This is God himself. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. The very words of God can destroy nations. And then on a personal level, the dividing asunder of your soul and your spirit. So it's very, very clear in the Bible that this metaphor of a sword is God's word, God's actual words, God's speaking. The Bible, the Holy Bible is the word of God. And so we learn that in the rest of the Bible. But here's a very good verse that explains that the word of God is the Bible and that we can use that for everything in our daily lives. 2 Timothy 3 verse 14 it says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So now that we know the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, how do we wield that sword to fight in this spiritual war? Well, you don't want to use it in the wrong way, right? I think of it like a gun. There are rules and safe ways to handle it. If you don't handle a weapon properly, you can hurt people around you or you can hurt yourself. So a gun has four rules. If you've ever been in the military or been a cop or been around those people or shot a gun a lot, eventually, hopefully, you would have learned these four rules. You treat every weapon as if it's loaded. You never point it at something that you don't want to kill. So you're using it for its intended purpose, right? 
know your target and what is behind it because bullets go through targets. So you have to know the capabilities of your weapon. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot because you don't want to have an accident and shoot somebody that you don't intend to shoot. A sword is going to have similar rules. It's very sharp. If you don't know how to handle it, it's probably pretty heavy and you're going to end up slicing yourself. Or if you swing it around your head and don't pay attention to the people around you, you might actually end up cutting off the head of your fellow soldier. So it can be dangerous to others if used the wrong way, right? So as far as the Bible goes and using the word of God, there's a couple things you want to think about. Number one, don't use it out of context. You need to actually study and understand the words that you are using. What that means is don't use verses for things that they don't mean. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, we must read the sword in context. One of the worst ways to use your sword is to read it out of context or read it into your own cultural biases. This is known as eisegesis. It's a long word. I'll explain it in a minute. For instance, say you read Philippians 4.13. You read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you don't know the original context of this verse, Paul suffering in prison with a thorn or a weakness that God wouldn't remove, you might interpret it differently. You might say for that passage, well, I can do all things, so I'm going to win the Olympics. That is not what that verse says. To properly wield this weapon, we must learn all we can about it, including the context of certain passages. End quote. Eisegesis is taking your biases or your preconceived notions and going to the Bible to try and back it up. That is you taking your context, your cultural biases, your view of what is right and wrong, and trying to conform the Bible to that. That is the wrong way to read the Bible. If you truly believe it's God's word, then you have to do exegesis, which means you take out of the Bible what it actually says, and then you conform your life your biases, you change your views based on what the Bible actually says, not what you think it says, not what you want it to say, okay? So there's types of context that you need to think about when you read the Bible. Number one, the immediate context of anything is what is the paragraph or the setting that it is in? What's the verse before it? What's the verse after it? You don't edit God's word, cut out the pieces that you want and go use it wherever you want to use it. You have to use it within the context that it was written in. Then you have to use it within the overall context of the whole Bible. The Bible does not contradict itself. It's God's word. God cannot contradict himself because that would mean that he was wrong on one of those viewpoints. So if you find a contradiction in the Bible, you are reading it wrong. One of those two contradictions, you are misunderstanding. So you need to read them in context of the whole Bible. The Bible supports itself. You have to read it in the historical context. When the Bible talks about a sword and God's like, go buy a sword. Well, modern day soldiers don't carry swords very often. What do soldiers carry? How do you fight a soldier? Because the sword was the most advanced weapon of that day. It was the most lethal, the one that every soldier had, the most common weapon, right? So today, what is the most common weapon? Well, it's a gun. 
So historical context makes a little bit of difference. What about a sandal? You know, the Bible's talking about sandals a lot of times. We don't always wear sandals. So in context, historically, we have to be thinking about the shoes that we wear, right? Or when he talks about riding a donkey to go pay your taxes or whatever. Well, for us, it'd be driving a car. So historical context, you need to understand what the times were, right? And then grammatical context. This is the one people screw up the most. Anytime you read a book, people read it literally. They always do. And if the book shows that there is an allegory or a metaphor or there's a simile or it's fantasy or it's, you know, science fiction, reading that book literally means you read it within that grammatical context of whatever grammar rules are applying to it. You don't read a newspaper as if it was fantasy when it's talking about the current law that was just signed in. When you read something literally, that means it literally might be science fiction or it literally might be a guy telling you a news story about something that happened that day and he uses a metaphor. Oh yeah, that guy just came in like a steam engine and clocked that guy in the face. Well, he's not talking about steam engines and clocks. Okay, so reading that literally is understanding the grammatical context of the metaphor. You have to actually be intelligent about grammar. And then, of course, you have the cultural context. So in Deuteronomy 22, people take this out of the context all the time. They say that if a woman uh, was not a virgin when she was married, that men... The Bible says men should stone her to death. And then on top of that, they talk about how um, barbaric the practice was of the parents being allowed to keep the bed sheets from the wedding night because of the virgin blood found on the bed sheet and how that's a strange and barbaric practice. Well, let me read these two verses. Deuteronomy twenty-two thirteen says, If any man take a wife, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel. Skip down to verse 21. It says, Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die. The historical context of that is women had no rights. They were viewed as property. A husband could stone a woman to death with, for no reason. The cultural context of that, if you read that whole passage, God was establishing for the Jews to be different, to establish that a woman has the right of self-defense. And that means that legally she could go to court and defend herself. That was unheard of in, in that time, in that culture. The immediate context of that is in those Bible verses. It says that the parents had the right to have that proof of virginity to protect the woman so that a man could not marry a virgin, sleep with her, decide he didn't like her and stone her to death and go out and marry another virgin. Men had to respect women and as their wife, they had a duty and an obligation to take care of them for the rest of their life. So this was actually establishing the right of a woman to defend herself legally and giving explicit details on how to do so. 
If you're a virgin, you take the bed sheet that has the blood on it after you have sex with your new husband and you give it to your parents so that the husband can't destroy it. And if you ever get in trouble but the law and he tries to claim that you weren't a virgin because the laws in those days were that they could kill you if you weren't a virgin on your wedding night, that you could have your parents defend you and bring that out as proof that no, she was a virgin. Here's the bloodstained sheet. So the overall context of this is that the Bible established for the Jewish nation, his people, that God elevates women despite the cultural norms and the laws of that day. That was huge. Women had no rights. Women were property. Women could be put to death. Women could be beaten. But the Bible established that that is not always the case. Women have a right to defend themselves. So if you look at the context of that particular passage, you actually learn that it's not what people tell you it is. So you have to be very careful with context, right? When you are using the sword, the word of God. The next thing you have to be careful of is to not take away from God's word. It's very important that you take it as a whole. Now, this particular verse is talking about the book of Revelations, Revelations 22, 18. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You see, every word of every verse in the Bible is important. Matthew 5.18 says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle is like the line across a T or the dot of an I. God, Jesus Christ was saying, the books of the Bible down to the dot over an I is inspired. Don't mess with it. That's, that's pretty fascinating because then you get to what people are doing to the Bible where they leave verses out and you realize how dire it is to pick apart the Bible and decide that you're not going to use part of it. That comes to people who then teach others these things. The Bible actually teaches that when you get to be um, a teacher and you start explaining the Bible to people, that with great power comes great responsibility. Remember that quote from Spider-Man? That idea actually comes from the Bible. Here's the exact quote, Luke 12, 47. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And here it is. For unto whomever much is given, of him shall much be required. With great power, much is required. Comes great responsibility. God is saying in that parable, Jesus is saying that if you know the Lord's will and you do not do it, your punishment is greater than the person who did not know the Lord's will. So when you read the Bible and you study it, and then you go out and you twist it on purpose, or you leave things out, or you do not do what you know you should do, now you're in trouble for it. 
So studying the Bible does have responsibility to it. You will be held accountable for the things that you know. So don't be a hypocrite. Matthew 7 talks about that. Judge not that you be not judged, right? And people always think, oh, no, that means you should never judge. A Christian shouldn't judge. No, no. Read the whole context. Read verse 2 and 3. Check this out. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So the Bible's not saying don't judge people. It's saying be careful when you judge people because you'll be judged the same way. And then verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in your own eye? This is saying, if you see a speck in your brother's eye and you, you call him out and you blame him, but you don't even see the two by four sticking out of your eye, you're an idiot. That's hypocrisy, right? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull the mote out of your eye and behold, a beam is in your own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to cast the moat out of your brother's eye. So if you have a problem, you take care of it first. If you read the Bible and you study it and you see that somebody else is doing something wrong before you judge them, you should evaluate yourself and see if you're doing that thing wrong. When you teach people, when you share the word of God with people, understand the context. Don't add or take away from God's word. Understand that you will be held responsible for the things that you quote, the things that you teach out of the Bible. And you better not be being a hypocrite when you do tell somebody that something is right or wrong. So those are all the things not to do. So what's the right way to wield the sword of the spirit? Well, clearly it's going to be the opposite of all those wrong things, correct? What you want to understand is that there are two perspectives on this, the physical and the spiritual. The word of God, the sword of the Lord is for your benefit and it is for your enemy's detriment, the demons. Remember, when we're talking spiritual warfare, we're talking Satan and demons. They cannot read your thoughts. They are not gods. They only know what you do and say. So for them to understand where your strength comes from, from God, that they're not just fighting you, they're fighting God when they attack you. Sometimes audible prayers and quoting of the scripture is required because otherwise they may not know what you're, what you're doing. Sometimes direct confrontation is required. Sometimes it's not. This is where you need discernment. For instance, when my daughter was a year and a half old, she woke up screaming in the middle of the night. My wife and I went to take care of her we felt an oppressive darkness. I have no idea what it was. I'm assuming it was a demon, okay? We turned on the lights, took my, took my daughter out of the room because she was pointing at something in the room, but it didn't look like there was anything there. But the hairs on my arms were standing up. We were scared. We could tell there was something there, but we couldn't see anything. And of course, with my daughter terrified and screaming, she would refuse to look there. Like she was kicking and screaming, wanted out of that room. So we went into the kitchen. Apparently it followed us. She saw it in the corner and freaked out. Whatever it was, she pointed at it. She was scared. She clearly explained to us that there's something over there that's terrifying me. And she tried to get away from it. I believe there was a demon in the house. Okay. So what did my wife and I do? Of course, we tried to calm her down, but she's screaming and then finally whimpering and 
and saying, you know, saying things to get away from it and, and trying to point and, and tell us there's something bad there and daddy get it away and things like that. So we had to pray out loud. And then I started actually quoting scripture to whatever was there and telling it to get out. I don't remember everything I said, but I'll share with you some Bible verses here in a minute. Sometimes direct confrontation is required if you know that there's something evil there. You have to say things. You can't just sit there and rock your daughter and and it'll just go away because it doesn't. So in order to fight the right way with the word of God, the first thing you need to do is know the Bible, study it, maybe even pick some verses and memorize them. Here's a good one to start with. Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. When it says I have hid your word in my heart, it means you've memorized it. When was the last time you memorized a Bible verse? And then 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we need to study the word of God. And then when you do study, then you'll be able to defend yourself, parry the enemy's attacks with a sword, right? Now, what does that do for you? Well, psychologically, in your own mind, It'll help bring peace to you, joy, being happy in a tough situation. It'll strengthen your faith. It can bring you comfort uh, when things are going wrong in your life. Remember, when you feel attacked in whatever way, if it's a spiritual attack, use the Bible to help yourself. Read it quietly to yourself. Pull out the Bible and read a chapter. It will help strengthen you. Quote it to yourself. Recall the verses that apply to that situation. Whatever situation you're in, I guarantee you, if you just Google what Bible verses help with this or that, you will find a lot of Bible verses that you could memorize and quote to yourself when there's something going on in your life. It also helps other people. You can quote verses to somebody that may help them when they need it, or you could give somebody scripture references to encourage them to open the Bible themselves. You know, it's kind of like, in my opinion, if a demon were to see you do that, it's kind of like um, North Koreans hearing President Trump saying, I've got a red button too, and I'm not afraid to use it. It's like, okay, do you really want to start a nuclear war? Because I'll bring God into this, to the demons. And maybe just by seeing you open the Bible and hearing you pray, that alone scares them off because they know that they can't defeat God. So that's why I say a lot of times you want to do it audibly, verbally. You want to say things out loud. For instance, Jesus did it himself in Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So he quoted scripture from the Old Testament. And keep in mind, he might have been doing this as a human being for himself. 40 days and 40 nights of not eating food. And the devil's like, just turn these stones into bread. I'm sure there was other stuff there where he was, you know, telling Jesus he didn't need to fast and things like that, where clearly God had wanted him to do that. So in order to help bolster himself to fight that hunger, 
he brought up the fact that we don't need bread alone. We can use the word of God to feed ourselves. And he's talking about feeding his soul. And that may have comforted him at that time. The other thing is, is that was kind of a, a parry that was blocking the attack of the devil with scripture. Now, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes you need to go on the attack. So remember, a sword is not just used to block another sword. It is also used to slice the enemy, right? So if you continue reading in Matthew 4, verse 5, it says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So he's not defending here. He's commanding the devil, do not tempt the Lord. He's attacking. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.16. Then back to Matthew 4, uh, verse 8. He says, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said unto him, All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil saying that to God. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. So again, he attacked. He said, Get away from me, Satan. He, he actually commanded the devil, ordered him to leave, and then quoted more scriptures. And then what did the devil do? He left. I'm sure the fact that it was God himself, Jesus Christ, played a big part in it. But what we have to realize is, as believers is that in the New Testament, God said that we have the Holy Spirit, the comforter that is with us. We have a spirit within us that is greater than he that is in the world. So we literally have God standing here. So when we quote scripture at Satan or at the demons, it could have the exact same effect as what Jesus Christ did when he said something to him. Now, here's another one, too. You also have to understand that we actually are not the ones that hold the power. It is the sword of the spirit. It is God himself. It is God's words that have the power, not us. Michael, the archangel, rebuked the devil in Jude 1, 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So using God's words to attack is the best thing. We are not stronger than demons. God is stronger than demons. So what we need to know is that God has already prepared the end. God knows what is going to happen and God is going to make it happen. So the end for demons is hell. There have been times in my life where I've faced demons and I let them know that I know where they're going to end up. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which is what we know as hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. Just quote that verse to him. You're going to hell. You're not taking me with you, so get out of my house. Remember, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, just like he did from Jesus. And of course, the primary purpose, if you are already a believer, the primary purpose of sharing the word of God 
the sword of the spirit is to help free the slaves of the enemy to lead people to Christ. When we are attacking the devil, it's not to save us. We're already saved. We're going to heaven. The devil might kill us, but we'll end up in heaven forever, for all eternity. So what's the point of us fighting if death is a release from all these problems and and we go to heaven? Well, the point of us fighting is to free as many of the devil's slaves as we can so that they can go to heaven with us. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. And the way we free them is by sharing the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and ours, that he rose again on the third day because he is God and went to heaven to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him also. That's the gospel message, and that's why we fight. So to recap, the sword of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, is God's word. We ought to use it responsibly by studying it, defending ourselves, attacking the enemy, and witnessing to people to free them from hell and Satan. I hope you enjoyed this series on spiritual warfare. And until next time, God bless you.